If you've read the news lately, you've probably heard about increasing inflation, potential recessions, and the worsening of the overall global economy. And if you think that all this has a chance to affect the website market, then you'd be absolutely correct. And to get into that in more detail, my guest today, Justin Cook, is the co-founder of Empire Flippers. They're one of the larger website buying and selling marketplaces that deal with sites like the ones we create. And one thing I really like about Justin is that he's super honest. He wears his hat on his shirt. He'll tell you exactly how it is, even when things aren't going so well, as he does today in this interview where he shares how they almost sold a big chunk of Empire Flippers and that deal recently fell apart. And he'll also share some specifics on how the buying and selling of websites has really changed a lot this year. Some things have just completely flipped around and they've been turned on their heads. We also get into talking about AI and site quality, which is becoming a big factor this year for buyers looking to purchase a website. And it's almost gotten to the point where if you're doing some of this stuff wrong, then you don't have much of a chance to sell your site. Now, this is a great interview. We got into a lot of detail about some of the really specific things about buying and selling and valuing a website. So I've also included at the end of this episode, a full breakdown of my thoughts and my analysis on what all of this means for you and I as site builders. And just before we get started, I wanna thank today's sponsor, Search Intelligence. They're a digital PR company that specializes in getting you links. We'll share more about them later in this episode. So without further ado, let's get started with the interview. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. And now your hosts, Gail Breton and Mark Webster. Hey, Justin, welcome back to the Authority Hacker Podcast. I believe it's been five or six years since we last had you on. So uh, good to have you back. Yeah, good to be back, man. Yeah, been a minute. It has indeed. And, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed in both of our businesses, but also in the global economy. How would you say this year, 2023, has affected the buying and selling of, of websites in general? Yeah, it's changed a lot. Back from 2018, 2019, we saw a steady kind of increase in valuations. We saw, you know, buyer just ramping up, ramping up. And then 2020 and 2021 were just wild years. So you know, people were buying businesses, content sites, e-com, service-based businesses like crazy. So valuations went through the roof in 2021, 20, even early 2022. We saw a quick change to that at the very beginning, January, February, March of 2022, where a lot of the financing dried up and they had to do with like global market trends. The cost of capital went up. There was less appetite for risk. And so in 2022, we saw a distinct change. It went from a seller's market to way more of a buyer's market, right? Where they could be more selective or choosy in the listings they're purchasing. And with that, we've seen a decline in valuations through 2022 and continuing on into 2023. Can you give me a specifics numbers on valuation changes across those, those years for kind of content affiliate type size? Yeah, so content sites specifically, I'd say in the last half of 2022, even into 2023, we've seen a decline. So it's like two to three X on the monthly multiple. So I think it was around selling on average like 36 X or so in the second half of 2022. And that's dropped to around 35, uh, 34 times in 2023 on the content side side. Okay, that's interesting. So it's not a massive drop, but you said it's just harder to 
make those sales happen because this flip in the, I guess, supply demand economics. W- what are the sites that are still selling well doing then that, that those that uh, aren't aren't? Yeah, so the thing the thing that's kind of uh, propped up or maintained uh, valuations to some degree are the really high quality, growing or at least stable content sites. Those are still crushing. They're getting multiple offers. There's a lot of interest in those types of business. It's the middling businesses, the middling content sites that are okay, but they've seen some decline. They've struggled a bit. Those are the ones that are much harder to sell or, or selling for lower multiples. The kind of like low-end sites, the kind of uh, uh, crappier, really niche and not really expanded sites, those are the ones that struggle to sell today because buyers have so many options. They have so many different businesses uh, listed and available that those are really harder to sell today. And is that decline in traffic, I'm guessing, of a, or revenue of a, of a site, does that affect the ability to sell it in a significant way. If someone has had a decline at some point, is that a big red flag? Is, it, is it, Are they going to be able to sell their site? It's possible to sell, but I would expect lower multiples and less offers, meaning a less competitive process. The problem is now there's less uh, display money out there. There's less advertisers. They're spending less. And so because of that, a lot of content sites have seen a bit of decline. So if you're in a situation where you can separate yourself from others, it's that, that analogy where you don't have to be the fastest person. You just have to be faster than the person next to you if you're getting chased by a bear. And similar when selling your business, you want to look good compared to the other people that are listing and selling their business. So if you've got stable significantly year over year growth, but you've got just kind of a stability where a lot of other people are in decline, that kind of sets you apart from your competitors. I'm just wondering, so a couple months ago, we had the uh, winding down of Universal Analytics, and now everyone's kind of forced onto GA4. Is that still the kind of gold standard for tracking things like traffic? And how have you kind of managed the difference, the, the transition from one to the other? Because I know that, at least in our analytics, the numbers are slightly different from one tool to the other for the same period of time. Yeah, that's kind of a struggle for buyers, right, to determine kind of value in terms of like what the traffic looks like. Google Analytics is still the standard in terms of like determining what traffic looks like. Early on, when we start, first started selling sites, you know, people wanted to use all different types of uh, analytics tra- tra- tracking show what the traffic was. And the problem with that is a lot of times it's like locally controlled and you can manipulate the data. And the good thing about using Google is that it's not manipulated. Or, well, it's not as easily manipulated. There are issues where you can like double your traffic and, you know, kind of bad conversions by uh, bot traffic or whatever. But ultimately, you know, your business is going to be sold based on how much it earns and not how much traffic it gets. So that's going to be the real determining factor. And is are there any kind of shenanigans going on there with people trying to inflate the amount, the, their numbers, inflate their revenue? And, and how do you guys police that or catch that fraud, I guess uh, you, you call it? Yeah, so there's lots of ways people under fraud. I don't want to build like a blueprint <laughs> for how to like get the scams through, but we catch them pretty often. So normally it's around earnings because earnings are going to be kind of the determinant on how much your business sells for, you know, how much it's earning. It's, you know, going to give you a multiple and you can sell based on that. So sometimes people will try to do things, funky stuff in like the expenses, for example hide expenses. And it's really hard to like prove a negative, right? It's really hard for us to prove that they have expenses when they don't. But we have ways and tricks for looking for things like that to make sure that we're accurately reporting what the earnings are in the business. And in terms of who's buying a site these days, has there been any kind of shakeup this year of the, the types of people or businesses or organizations that are on the buying end? 
2020, 2021, there were a lot of aggregators. I don't know if you're familiar with this. is mostly in the e-com space and so and the FBA space. So there are a lot of these large private equity types uh, that were getting into the game on uh, debt and they were buying up a ton of e-com businesses. And so that was much different than we'd seen previously, where there's a lot of independents, a lot of like kind of mom and pops and, you know, independent SEOs that were buying uh, sites and businesses. So that, there was a real run up in 2020 and 2021. A lot of those have gone away in, through 2022 and into 2023. Now we're kind of back to the independents, right? So the independent owners, the investor operator partnerships, a lot of people looking to kind of like, they liked working remotely. Let's say you've got a, a nice white collar job. You made some good money, put some money away. And they're like, look, I like this remote stuff. I want to go work in Bali or Bangkok or Ireland. And uh, I want to buy a site that you know provides me the freedom to do that. So you have a lot of people like that. It's kind of back to the old days where a lot of buyers are looking to add cash flow so they can replace their nine to five. Is there a risk that those types, for those types of buyers, if they're buying into something maybe they're not so familiar with that they can't maintain the business or continue uh, to grow it? Yeah, we've we've had that. We've had the problem for, for many years where people come to us and say, look, I want to buy a business. You know, kind of here's my situation. I'm looking for the cash flow. I like the returns I can get on this. But I don't have any experience running an online business. And this is a real trial by fire exercise. So there are people that have some skills. They've done some of it already. And this is a great way for them to kind of like throw themselves in the deep end and work through it. And so a lot of times they'll start with like a smaller site. You know, they've got, let's say they've got four or $500,000 to spend. They might buy a sixty, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 site to kind of test it out, make sure this whole internet money thing is real, and then look for like a larger acquisition. So we get some of those. But in situations where people just, you know, don't have any skills, I think of like my aunt, for example. I mean, she's got skills, but no skills like running online businesses. She was like, I want to get involved in the space. And my answer was always like, no, that's just not a good idea. And so we have the same similar thing with other customers who come to us. We're like, look, it just this isn't a good thing for you. And we had to turn a lot of people away. Maybe we can talk about it later, but that's one of the reasons we end up starting Web Street is like we wanted there are people that wanted access to the space. They wanted to be able to invest in these kind of online businesses, but just didn't have the skills or the time to run these online businesses. And we wanted to offer a solution for them. Okay. Yeah, well, we can certainly talk that in, in a sec. I just want to cover a few more things. So AI, big deal in 2023. How is that shaking things up? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know about what your what your personal thoughts on AI. I'm a bit of a doomer. I think long term AI stuff See, is uh I, I started off, we went through this like three month period when it was like it was a little bit of doom and gloom, like what's what's gonna happen? And then nothing really cha significantly changed, at least for most parts of the business. I was like, okay, you know, this is this is gonna be a bit more stable than than I thought. And I think that in any industry, like you have the people who who latch on to the doomsday scenarios, but yeah. I think it's going to be a lot more of a slow, um, slow and steady change rather than one big cliff edge. Um, that God, most I hope people you're are right. Proclaiming about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Eliezer Yukowski, I think his name is, like the Sam Harris model of like, oh my God, this is going to be so disruptive to everything, jobs, everything, longer term. Yeah, how that will ultimately play out, I don't know. What it's doing for our business is that there is some buyer reluctance to buy businesses that could easily be replaced uh, with AI. So there's some reluctance from a buyer's perspective to do that. And do you mean like content sites there or yes. like content agencies or what, what are we talking about here? Content sites, content agencies. So there is that perspective. I, I agree with Greg, our marketing director, talks a lot about 
rather than just having a content site that's just monetized with display ads or affiliates or whatever, you should really look at building your pieces of content, your assets into much larger like media sites. So you can monetize via e-commerce, you can add digital products, you can build community around it. I think that's a really smart move today because it's not just about like how the content's produced. It's about what kind of audience you're building and what kind of like fan base you have for that media um, asset. So I think that's a really smart move. Build your email list, things like that, that a lot of content site people don't do. They're like, yeah, you know, I'll just, I've got the affiliate stuff. I got the display ads making money. That's fine. But I think the bigger and better move is to really build a community build a longer term asset out of it. And ultimately in the long run, that's gonna make you more money. And is that dependent on the business model or like the types of content they're producing? Like how does someone go from just an AdSense site in order to community-based site like you're, you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of marketing aspects to that, building a brand loyalty that people wanna come back to, uh, providing information that you can't just get from a, that Amazon can't provide, for example. Pairing ideas together. So this is an old example, but um, I forget his name, but he, he had a business, it was in like the trolling motor space. You, you probably remember this, right? And what he did was you know, to separate himself from like Amazon, is like Amazon's not that great at kind of building relationships on what kind of uh, fishing line you'd use and what's better for certain trolling motors. And I, I don't know, it's not my space, but he would talk about all these things that like Amazon wasn't great at. And so you would know if you had actual perspective. And I think if you're talking from a perspective that you under, uh, something you understand really well and giving a perspective that's super helpful and putting those kind of like things together, that's going to separate you out from things like ChatGPT and AI content and your competitors. One thing that we found was that very much like when you have a higher ticket products or service to sell, the revenue per customer that you have is obviously insanely higher than you just have ads on your site. And we did a survey, we actually released it last week, and we found that as people, as affiliate marketers gained more experience, they trended towards having, you know, getting into uh, email marketing, building a community, building a list, having their own products, all those types of things. And we also tracked like the, the revenue that they were making per visitor. And it was like 10 or 20 times higher when they started doing these, these things. So I think just as people get more experience and confidence, they kind of naturally trend towards, towards doing that anyway. I think so. It reminds me of the SEO path where you first you start off like as a contractor for another company providing SEO services. And then you eventually you're going to um, build out an agency. And then eventually you're like, look, I want my mind. I was just building my own sites and like making all the money for myself. The only thing you have to be careful with is when you're going for other monetizations is that there's going to be a, I don't know, darkest before the dawn period. If you're lazy and a lot of seos are and i don't mean that in like a bad sense i mean it like they're going for like the path of least resistance you're gonna find more resistance when you add monetization methods you're gonna have failures trying to sell digital products or physical products that you didn't have on the affiliate site so it might get a little worse your margins might get a little worse your conversions might get a little worse at first don't be discouraged by that i mean be a little discouraged by that but like it's going to take a little time to work out the new conversions with new products and stuff that you add and so it may take some time to get there but just understand that that diversification is super helpful for the business in the long run both from a way for you to make money but also in terms of like potentially selling your business down the road to be a much more attractive asset 
I don't even see it as like diversification. Often when people use that term, I, I, I feel like they're saying like as a way to avoid risk, we're kind of spreading ourselves wider. And I, I, I get it. For us, like the, the mindset is more like, where is the money? You make 10 times more money with your own product than you do promoting someone else's product or selling in someone else's services. So it just, it just makes sense to do that, even if that's all you do and you, you're, you're not diversifying at all. The revenue potential is... Yeah, making your own product is another good example. Like that's in the physical product space, a good way to kind of test that out is to sell other people's products, physical products to start. And when you realize you don't know who's going to buy what. And so it's a way of you to test out products without actually having to go to China, build the products, figure out, you know what I mean? Like you can just test that out and you can actually create your own branded products. And again, a great way to build loyalty is to build out your own branded products and people who love your stuff and come back and tell their friends about it. That's a really good way to, to build out a business is to, to go branded a long term. Absolutely. And how do you value a site in 2023? What factors go into that? Actually, we'll hear the answer from you in just a sec. But first, I have a message today from our sponsor, which is Search Intelligence. In this video, I will show you how we landed a placement on BBC and dozens of links in massive regional online publications such as Wares Online, Daily Post and many more. This PR campaign was about the easiest place to pass your driving test for the first time in the UK. This is how we've done it. We simply went to DVLA website, found the latest car driving test data by test center and downloaded the data in a CSV format. Once we had the data, all we had to do is to look at the number of total tests per test center, then look at the number of first time passes to calculate the percentage of people who passed their test for the first time. Once we had the percentage numbers, we created a press release with our findings. Then we went to Roxhill and found journalists who talk about driving tests and also looked for journalists who write in regional publications in the UK. In total, we have found about 1,800 journalists and sent them our press release by email. Within less than a day, our story got picked up by BBC, Cornwall Live, Wells Online and dozens of other publications in the UK, providing our client a tsunami of backlinks perfectly relevant to the audience of the client who is a specialist in learner driver car insurance. I hope this video is helpful and it shows you how you can also build links with freely available data from official sources. And you can head over to search-intelligence.co.uk to check them out for all your digital PR needs. And now back to the interview. And how do you value a site in 2023? What factors go into that? So we actually have a valuation tool on our site where people can go to empirewebers.com. They can you know, put in all the details around their business and they'll get a really good rough, but really good estimate on what their business is worth. And it takes a whole bunch of things into account, primarily earnings. So how much the business is earning month over month, what the kind of growth trends are going to determine what that business sells for. Typically, you're going to sell somewhere between two years and four years of net profit over the last 12 months. Now, that's going to change. That's a pretty wide range. If you're making 100000 a year, you could sell somewhere between two hundred dollars and $400,000. You want to be closer to that 400000 than the 200000 obviously. Um, but there's a lot of things that go into that. Your growth trajectory, how long it's been around, what kind of expenses you have, what kind of add backs you're asking for, those kinds of things. So, so like, if we can just get into that a little bit more. We had a situation, I think, four or five years ago. We got a valuation from, from Empire Flippers. At the time, our, we were spending most of our money, most of the profit, 
in content and link building and kind of trying to grow the site. So I think what happened was like the valuation was, the profit was definitely a lot lower. So the, the valuation was lower. Now we ended up selling the site another way for like, I think twice what the, the valuation was. Like how has that thinking then changed over the last five years around ad backs? And, you know, is, is this really a, a building asset value? Is it an ongoing expense and therefore profit should be re- reduced? So we're a lot more nuanced around ad backs and what's allowed in terms of ad backs today. However, the fact of the matter is, is that if a buyer is looking to buy a business, they're going to look at kind of like regular expenses and kind of what's included in that. What what expenses are recurring? You know, how much effort is the site owner uh, putting into building out content, building backs, backlinks themselves? Were they spending on content or, you know, to have backlinks uh, put in? And so they're going to take that into account one way or another. But yeah, ultimately, we work with the seller and explain to them, look, if you've got recurring costs, buyers are going to expect that to be included as an expense. But we don't have to. We can add it back. Ultimately, it becomes a negotiating point. So for example, if you add back content, all content and link building costs, and you have some like regular recurring stuff you're doing on a monthly basis... A buyer may look at that and say, look, you know, I want to not have these added back. These are recurring expenses. They need to be included. And the seller is just adamantly, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not okay with that. Well, what the buyer is going to do is they're going to come back and they're going to bake that into their multiple. So if they were going to buy at 36 times the monthly earnings, they go, no problem. I'm going to, my offer's coming in at 33 or 32 times monthly earnings, right? So I mean, there's there's different ways to skin the cat, but from a buyer's perspective, they're going to look at that and take that into account. Now, in instances where there was kind of a one-off, like heavy expense, let's say in the last twelve months, um, and that and that's not a regular monthly recurring or regular quarterly recurring expense, then that can be added back, and usually uh, we can work around buyer expectations there. But in cases where it's like regularly being produced on a monthly basis. Buyers know that, savvy sellers know that, and that's kind of uh, part of the game. We have situations where we've had sellers uh, that were looking to list or sell somewhere else that because of our kind of more nuanced approach to it, will come and sell their business with us. And we've had situations where, you know, we, we were telling a seller, look, I mean, this is the case. This is where you're going to have to take into account. And they end up going somewhere else. So that's that's just par for the course. Doesn't that then encourage sellers to reduce their monthly earnings to the point where it may actually harm the site in the long term. Like if I cut link building costs in half for a year, I'll get a higher sales price in theory, but link building takes a bit of time to kick in. So isn't that going to like hurt the buyer of the site in future? Well, that's an interesting gamble sellers can take. So sellers may, in some cases, they just completely shut down any of their expenses or whatever. And they, they try and time this perfectly, right? So they try and do it like four or five months before selling their business, hoping that it'll just sell quickly and they'll kind of get the, the deal through. And then they get listed and it takes 30 days, 60 days, 90 days to sell the business. They now have a decline in earnings and their business is now struggling. And so, I mean, it's not really a yes, you make a little marginally extra money out of it because you cut your expenses. But like you're taking a real gamble and like ruining your business in the short term. And you could be in a situation where you're just not able to sell your business because of the decline in traffic, the decline in earnings. And then you have to take your business off the marketplace, wait another 12 months to sell your business. Particularly if you have a valuable asset, anything over six figures, that's just, I don't think that's a very good gamble to take. Yes, you're right. 
But like, I think the gamble isn't worth it in situations where it goes to shit. Is there then a happy medium where they can, you know, optimize their spending? So get it down a bit without impacting the, the actual rankings, hopefully, uh, but still. Absolutely. I mean, you want to focus on kind of what your you know your core is. So the things that are providing the most amount of value in terms of the link building or content or SEO side, stick with those. Drop your exploratory SEO, drop your exploratory marketing. So if you're heading into a 12-month period where you know you're going to be selling your business in the next year, those kind of like, let's say you're getting into like a conference sponsoring or whatever, and you don't really know, it's hard to judge your return there, maybe drop that. Maybe cut that out during that time frame. So yeah, there's definitely things you want to do to optimize. You want to stick with the things that provide the most value and the things that are questionable or more difficult to measure, you maybe drop some of those expenses. I think that's a, a worthwhile risk. So yeah, the, the, it's nuanced here in that you first said, like if you just drop all expenses, you wouldn't share a profit margin to be up, yes, but you're taking a huge gamble, I think isn't worth it. On the other hand, like keeping all of your exploratory marketing up probably isn't the best move. The things that, because you know, you know this, in marketing, a lot of times things don't pan out, right? Like you, you, you test different things and a bunch of them fail and finally you get something that works. Maybe dropping some of that exploratory stuff makes sense if you're heading into a sale. It's common when someone wants to sell a site that they'll go to multiple brokers and ask how much do you think my site is worth. What's stopping some of the more unscrupulous players in the industry from just saying, oh, we'll, we'll get you, you know, five years profit or six years profit and then winning the business that way? Is there, is there kind of yeah. like an arms race goes on in that sense? Yeah, we struggle with this internally, right? At Empire, we talk about this and we go, look, what do we do? against a competitor that just straight up lies. It just says, hey, this is what I can get you. I've got these special buyers. I've got these magical buyers willing to pay unicorn multiples for businesses. Like how do they just not get them listed on their platform? And our, we, we struggle with this, but our take ultimately is that sellers in the end are, the sellers we want are savvy. The sellers we want are the ones that get it, that go, look, I, I understand when someone's blowing smoke up my butt. Like, I understand that you guys know the market, that you guys you know, know where we're at, and I don't want to uh, be sucked into something where I'm promised the moon and stars, and they eventually kind of work me back down to a valuation that kind of makes sense and, and is more realistic. You see that sometimes, you know, but our philosophy is like, look, it's just better to be straight uh, straight up with people and, and explain it. Now, one thing I will mention is that a couple of years ago, we made a decision to say, look, well, we started like um, raising multiples to kind of keep up with demand. And what we did is we told sellers, look, here's the thing. We're going to list your business. We want you to get the highest valuation possible. We want you to get the most value as possible. And so we're going to start like we're going to start off at a higher multiple to get you more money potentially. And what we're really doing that is for like the 10 to 20% of businesses that are the highest quality and then other businesses that are kind of the middling quality are going to get lower offers. And so we prep our sellers for that saying, look, you know, we want to give you the best opportunity to make the most amount of money, but be open to and expect offers that are below list. You mentioned there about prepping sellers. And I think that's a really important aspect of selling a site that people kind of overlook is we got our P&L ready, all the documents are there. Okay, 
let's just see who wants to buy it. But I think so much of the process, at least in our experience of selling, you know, only a handful of sites, but that first impression you make, that uh, initial call you have with a, with a buyer, the impression you give and if you know your numbers, what you know in there, how you present yourself, it counts so much. And I've spoken to a number of people who have bought sites from us and, and they've said that that's like the reason that they decided to buy our site rather than one of the half a dozen or so other, other options they, they have. How can yeah. someone make a great first impression and, and make sure that, that that buyer is buying their site on that call? Yeah, it's not just about the numbers and sellers need to understand this. It's not just, I mean, they're going to look at your numbers, obviously, and they're going to do, do their due diligence and kind of dig through everything that you presented. But in many cases, particularly for larger businesses, they're going to want to get on a phone call with you. They're going to want to look you in the eye. They're going to understand how you built the business, why you built the business. And this kind of like narrative stuff, this kind of storytelling is really important in selling your business. People want to know that they, they can trust you and trust the thing that the asset that you've built and the things you put together. And one of the ways to do that is just have a conversation. One of the things we do at Empire Flippers is we prep. So, you know, obviously when we're getting ready to sell the business, we do some prep with them. But before every what we call buyer-seller call, BS call, but before every buyer-seller call, uh, we'll do a, uh, a prep on that call. So our agent will get on the phone with the seller, kind of explain, you know, what the process is, what to look forward to, some things they should say, maybe avoid. They'll be on the call with them. And then at the very end of it, they'll do a wrap up and say, here are the next steps. Here's what you should expect. I think that really helps the sellers kind of present their best case for selling the business and uh, themselves and the, the business overall. One of the things the sellers can do just while they're on the phone with the buyer is try to understand, be empathetic and understand kind of the buyer's motivations. It's really important to understand where the buyer is coming from so that you can sell to that. So it's good to know if your buyer is someone that's put a nice little nest egg together and is looking to kind of quit their job and kind of run this as their kind of like their job going forward. Like that's a different motivation than someone who has a portfolio of businesses that this fits in really well and it's like kind of strategic purchase for them in terms of like the other businesses they have. You may like want to sell or at least position the business in a much different way. And so understanding buyer and motivation can really help you close the deal on, uh, in a sale. I have a question about being a broker. And this doesn't really apply just to in the website space, but any industry, you know, real estate and other things as well. How yeah. do you ensure that you're going to get the best price for the seller because looking at it you know if, if let's say a website's worth 500k if you can find a buyer that's willing to buy it for 400k zero friction easy deal versus having to go to half a dozen or a couple dozen calls wait for the right buyer to come along at the the right price at the right price that's significantly more work for not just you but for any broker how can you then so, so it's like the marginal. What's the motivation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's I, almost I totally like the, the, the marginal amount of work that you're doing to get the best price. It starts getting to be more and more work for you. So, how is your incentive then to to get the best price for the the seller? Surely it's. And sorry to put you on the spot with this, but no, no, no. It, sure, yeah. Surely it's to it's to get the easiest price in in a way. And, and I'm not talking about specifically Empire Flippers, but just brokers in general. Like, how, how do you manage that? So that's one of the few areas where it's not as aligned with the seller's interest as you may want it to be, right? So like we've talked about this a lot internally, and so we have guards against this. But obviously selling for more money, right, makes us makes us more money, right? But you're right. It's kind of marginal in that if we sold for an extra 10% of the value or whatever, that's an extra 10% to our commission. 
which is very significant to the seller, but not necessarily massive to us. And so it's like, oh, we'd rather kind of put, it's easier for us to kind of push the businesses through at 10% less than it is to go the extra mile and do that extra 10%. So we have situations and we've done like um, um, specific commissions. We've tested this out a little bit where we make a larger commission should we sell the business for more. So like there's more incentive on our end to sell the business for a higher valuation and it like uh, justifies the additional work. I don't know if that makes sense or not. We've done that a little bit, but in some cases it just doesn't make sense. What we found to be the easiest way to do it is to have the largest amount of buyers. And so we've worked really, really hard to become a marketplace in the space that everyone knows. And I think this helps in any brokering anything is if you have the most amount of buyers and, and you do that by having some of the best listings, if you can get the highest quality listings and sell them for the most amount of money, you're going to get the buyers. And so having the buyers puts you in a situation where you're likely going to sell for more. Now, one of the things I'll mention too, is you always want to have a tension between what list price is and what sold price is. So if you're exactly at it, let's say you're listing and selling for exactly the price, you know that you're underpricing businesses. Right, so you don't want to you don't want to have your list price and your sold price be exactly the same. You want a bit of tension there. How much tension? Well, that's the question, right? So, do you want to have it listed for double and you're selling for half? No, that probably doesn't make sense. We generally think somewhere between ten to twenty percent intention is a good place to be. We know that if we're under that, we're probably underpricing businesses. If we know we're over that, we're probably overpricing businesses. So, there's a range that kind of makes sense on the brokerage side, where if you're outside of that. You're, you're either high or low on pricing. And I want to talk now a little bit more about SEO. So are there any kind of emerging trends or opportunities that you've seen in the last couple of years that not motivated, but uh, savvy sellers are taking advantage of? The specifics, I'm not a technical SEO guy, so I can't speak to that. I can say that businesses that are diversifying in terms of their monetization, that are adding communities, that are selling uh, physical products, that are getting into the digital space, that have a, a, a wide range of product offerings tend to sell a lot better. And there's a lot more buyer interest in those kind of brands and those assets. So that's that's a trend that we've noticed over the last couple of years that we think is pretty valuable. So rather than just having a straight up content affiliate site, actually adding different monetization, kind of expanding the brand has been very valuable. And some of our larger content sales are in situations like that, where they've expanded the brand and the content and the product offerings to offer you know, lots of different services or products. And has there been any change in the way link building or links are viewed over the last few years? I know several years ago, PBNs were kind of the thing that people were a little bit uneasy about and wanted to, to make sure, you know, there's no hidden PBNs. Do people, are, are buyers still comfortable with guest posting or Haro link building or is there, has there been a change there? No, Haro links are fine. Guest posts is fine. People are a little nervous about AI content. So they're worried about spammy content. You had this problem years before where any of the spun content, they had all those like content spinners and stuff. And so people were looking for that. Now people are looking for AI content. The problem with AI content is much harder to tell. So, but yeah, buyers are a little nervous about that. And so I think there's there's a kind of nuanced way to play AI where you're at least getting the, the right prompts in, you're getting the piece written, and then you're adjusting and editing that with like human eyes and human intervention, I think is a, is a good way to do that. And that, that pretty much works it out to where buyers are okay, but that's about it. Do, do you use any kind of AI detection software or, I mean, do you even believe in that stuff? 
So we we've looked at it to get some sense on on whether it would work or be useful. But it seems like things are moving so quick in the AI space that you know the AI detection tools work for a minute and then they don't work. So it's like they're around for a couple of weeks and then all of a sudden there's new AI content delivery that's outsmarting it. So I don't know, man. Will that catch up? I don't know. I'm not sure. But yeah, we're we're not right now simply because of that that fact that we we started using it. We played. We didn't use it. We started playing with it. We didn't use it in a production capacity. We started messing around with it on the kind of marketing operations side, just to like see what we could do there. And it didn't. We didn't find it terribly valuable. And when it comes to valuation, then what what are the main kind of points of negotiation that the buyers or sellers will tend to go go back and forth on? Obviously, sellers trying to get the most amount of money. Buyers trying to get the buy it for the least amount of money. What are the strings each of them are pulling there? Yeah, so that's one of the reasons that you know brokers like us are involved is they kind of disconnect between buyers and sellers. Sellers think, look, if I can sell my business, I can get close to this price, I win. And buyers are thinking, oh my god, the sellers doesn't know what they have, and if I can buy it at this price, I win. And so that disconnect allows us to kind of like help negotiate between them. Um, but yeah, so. Typically, you know, businesses are sold on a multiple of net profit. And so it all comes down to like what's determined in that net profit and how is that net profit determined. It's more complicated with a service business or e-commerce business. Content sites are pretty straightforward. It's all about like, you know, what the kind of expenses look like, what the profit looks or what the revenue looks like, the expenses look like, and then over what time period you're measuring. So in a situation where the site has been declining, Maybe a seller wants to use a longer time frame, so they want to use a 12-month period. In a situation where it's growing significantly, maybe the seller wants to use a shorter time frame. So when you look at monthly net profit, a seller in an increasing business wants says, hey, can we use a six-month time frame, right, rather than 12-month or 18-month? And that makes sense, right, because it's growing. But in a declining situation, you wouldn't you wouldn't get to do that. You want to use a shorter time frame. So ultimately, in determining these valuations is just the framework we use. So we say, look, 12 months net profit, you know, we're taking your expenses into account and we're nuanced in our ad backs. This is about what it is. That's the framework that the buyer has to come from. And a lot of times sellers, the problem is like they, they want to sell for $400,000. They, they want to make $400,000. But using that framework, we have to kind of figure out how we're going to position that. And then buyers come in and when a buyer says, there's no way you're getting $400,000 for the business, it's not worth that. And you have sellers that sometimes, this is your baby, right? You take it very personally. And so they're like, Woody, I'm not worth $400,000. Like, you take it very personally. You're saying, I'm not worth it? You, you know, and then they start, like, kicking the tires and you get really mad. So when, when you use a framework for here's why we're using the multiple we're using, here are the expenses that we're saying are relevant and need to be included, and, like, here's why the multiple is what it is, it's just an easier, like, framework to use for people to kind of, like, sellers to be comfortable with and buyers to gently negotiate. So I'd say to get to your point, where the expenses are, which ultimately determines the profit, and then what kind of time frame you're using, a six-month, nine-month, 12-month time frame. Those are points of negotiation for sure. One thing we've been really bad at is picking the right time to sell. We've either sold and then immediately after we've sold, you know, the sites have continued to like double in size or something. Or we've decided not to sell and then, you know, it's tanked. So you know, how do you advise sellers or, or people, anyone that thinks they may sell a site in future to pick a, a time when they should do that from a maximizing valuation sales price perspective? It's tough because you do want to maximize value. And I, I understand that. But And you guys are in a unique case because you have a 
business and a brand and a media arm around what you do, which isn't the case for most people that are selling their business. So I'll speak to most people and not you guys in particular. But in most cases, I think sellers need to focus instead on instead of like trying to time the market for maximum value, they need to time the market for personal value. So like in a lot of cases, you know, sellers are selling their first time, their second time, that's most of the time. And so they need to think about what that financial windfall will do for them. What are they going to do next? What are they going to do with the money? Where are they going to put that money? What is that? How is that money to provide value to their lives? That's a better thing to think about in terms of like planning than I think how to time the market exactly. Because you're right. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. In situations where you sold too early, you can't be sure that you would have gotten that value either, right? You might have had problems with that site going forward and not had the value they had, particularly if it's like six months down the road or nine months down the road. It might not have performed that way for you for whatever reason. And similarly, if you just sold the business, maybe it wouldn't have tanked. Maybe they would have been able to correct it or or right the ship or whatever. So it's hard to say. But I think rather than thinking about like trying to time the market, it's better to think about what do I need the money for? What are my next steps? How is this going to materially impact my life? And do I want to make that happen or not right now? Do you recommend that sellers or potential sellers go through a process of, you know, getting their business ready to sell, streamlining everything, you know, building SOPs, processes, removing themselves from the business before going through the the sales process? And how far in advance should they start thinking about that? Yeah, it depends on the size of the business, I think. So if we're talking about business that's $200,000, $250,000, there's some things you need to do, but it doesn't need to be like really in depth in terms of SOPs and outsourcing everything. If we're talking about a two or three or four million dollar sale or more, yeah, there's probably needed probably more you need to do there. So, in cases where we're talking, let's say under five hundred thousand dollars, I mean, I'd say at least six months out makes sense. We're talking about two, three million or more. Twelve to eighteen months out makes sense to start doing some of those things and putting them together. Again, remember that it's going to be based on a twelve month time frame in terms of profits, typically. So if you have a much larger business, you probably want to think about when that clock starts. So maybe you're three to six months out uh, from the clock starting. Maybe that's a good time to start reviewing, building SOPs, cutting exploratory spend, marketing, SEO, and then really having that kind of 12-month window. Keep in mind, though, that – and this is why it's so personal, right? Keep in mind, if you really want to sell the business, and but you're now – choking on 18 months of like having to hang on and continue doing the work that may not it may be the smarter move like if you were able to keep with it and do all that work that you need to do in 18 months but that work could lead to a shitty outcome for you if you're not dedicated to seeing it through so in cases where you're like losing interest or just you're you're focused elsewhere and this is kind of becoming a distraction or a side thing for you I don't think taking that full 12 to 18 months is the smarter move. I think it's probably better to, the moment you realize you're moving on, to just get that listed as soon as possible. Yes, you're going to make less money than you potentially could have. But again, let's say you've got other projects going on forever. What is that $300,000 or $800,000 or $1.6 million going to do for you, your family, your other project that you're working on? How is it going to fuel the growth there? Maybe that other one's just sucking up cash that's growing so quickly. There's now fuel on the fire for you to use. So it's very personal. And like timing the market is not, it's more kind of a cerebral 
decision and there's something to that, for example. But like in a lot of cases, I think it comes down to what their personal circumstances are. And that's really important. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it because it's not just the money that you could roll over into this next project, but it's like if you have something else going that you know you need to sort of keep maintaining, but your heart's not in it, it just sucks so much of your like energy and mind space and time. Like I'm very much like a burn the ships kind of guy. Like just get like let's move on to the next thing and let's go all in on 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 this. Um, I know. And are you going to be able to commit to 18 months of like really doing the work and putting in the work to getting that, you know, business like to maximize value? So you can get an extra, you can get an extra 15%, 10, 15% of the value. You're like, oh, well, that's pretty significant. Yeah. But what if you don't? What if you don't put that time in? What if you plan to when you don't because you're attracted by other things? And now you've lost 30 or 40% of value. Right. So it's a, it's a bit of a gamble. Like if you love what you're doing and you're willing to commit to it for another 18 months, then sure, continue. But if it's a, you're losing interest or you're being distracted by a bigger opportunity or something, I'm not sure waiting and maximizing value is the smart move for you. And last question about valuations and selling and stuff. A lot of people in our community have asked around, are you still selling the asset or are you selling your company, your LLC? And is there a level at which it tends to move from one to, to the other? Not really. It's almost always an asset sale. Like 99.9% of the time, it's an asset sale. We've done very few stock sales. That's just not common. And a lot of times there's um, a liability issues. So a buyer doesn't want to take over the liability issues or the tax burdens or lots of things like that. So almost always it's an asset sale. You don't have to worry too much about that, that they're going to be rolling it up into whatever business they have, but you're purchasing assets and goodwill typically. Empire Flippers has been in the market since I think 2012, 2010, if you count the AdSense Flipper days. I found an old podcast of of yours from, from 10 years ago and you and Joe were talking about growing your team and you had multiple businesses back then uh, but, but for empire flippers you you saw yourself having one day 200 staff i believe you're now at 56 how have your views on team size changed over the last decade yeah it's interesting so we came up i think pretty similar to the time frame that you guys came up at authority hack so 2010 or so kind of getting our start and a lot of things that i thought back then some were right and some were wrong and i think both Joe and I had mistaken value on certain things. So in 2010, right, we had an office uh, for an outsourcing company that we had. We were in the Philippines and we had an office for outsourced staff, Filipino crew and stuff. And so my misconception at the time was like that you really need an office to be a legitimate business, right? And so keep in mind, this is before a lot of the kind of remote work stuff. And I just thought that you need to have an office to provide legitimacy. And that was a mistake of mine. My business partner, Joe, thought that a business's is value is the size or the number of the team. So having more and more people was really important to him. We ended up uh, having some issues with like clients and, and our outsourcing business to the point where we just shut down the office. And I felt like an absolute failure because that was messing with my mental framework, my, I think, wrong views on what makes a business successful. And in situations where we didn't have the staff or the much larger team, you know, I think that messes with kind of Joe's perspective on what makes a successful business. And so we've since, I think, come to understandings about what that means. I mean, 
frankly, not having an office is significantly better, right? We get to do all these cool retreats and travel and people can live and work wherever they want. It's a great recruiting tool for getting people on board at Empire Flippers. And then in terms of the number of people, maximizing profit per employee is a super helpful metric in your business. I'm sure you guys do this. You look at revenue and profit numbers per employee, per full-time employee, probably include contractors as well. And so that's a really positive metric to improve. And so that doesn't mean having the biggest team. Now, one thing we have noticed is that as you add to one of our kind of holdbacks early on, I think this is the case for a lot of entrepreneurs. One of our biggest holdbacks was not hiring people early enough and not hiring them fast enough. So we noticed, particularly early on, that when we would add an employee, we'd see revenue bumps. We'd add employee and we'd see revenue bumps. We wouldn't see the profit bump right away because of the expenses we're adding on, but we'd see the revenue bumps. And it made us realize that like not hiring was kind of slowing down our growth. And so you know, when we came to that kind of realization, we realized, okay, we need to turn these people faster. So when we get them on board, we can't have them take a year to start providing enough value to kind of cover their costs. We need to shorten that time gap. So instead of like bringing them on for the first three months, they're useless. And then the next three months, they're doing okay. We need to speed that up. So if we can get them useful and valuable, and they want to be useful and valuable uh, in a shorter period of time, three to six months, it provides a lot better value to us and we can get that, we can get you know, more profitable more quickly. So I know that's a, that's a kind of a mouthful, but does that make sense? It's super interesting because we used to run an agency in the sort of 2010 to 2014 type type time. And our view then was very much, let's add people, let's grow with people. I think a big part of it, if I'm being honest, was because when people asked us, how are you doing? How's your business doing? Friends, family member. No one comes to you and says, hey, Mark, what's your net profit after tax? Which is really what matters. They ask sure. you, how big's your team? Or like something to kind of gauge how well you're doing that way. So I don't know, maybe something subconsciously, I was equating team size to how well, well you're doing, but it absolutely doesn't mean that because yeah. in, our, in our experience, more people, more problems for the most part. But I think we've, we've almost gone the other way with Authority Hacker and like that experience scarred us quite a bit. So we were really reluctant to grow our team at, at all and try to do everything ourselves to the detriment of our own, own growth at times. So yeah, it's just really interesting. I don't know if Atrius has changed this, but they used to have a limit on their personnel of like 50 people. They don't want to be a company larger than 50 people. And part of their thinking was like, look, we don't want the whole HR thing. I mean, not they don't have the HR help, but like they don't want to have that whole bureaucracy and the politics of running a larger organization. And there's some truth to that. Like you have to know what kind of business you want to run. Uh, Mark, we're talking about like, you know, growing the people or whatever. In a perfect world, right? If you could have the perfect business in the world, and I half joke about this, but I'd like a business that just rains down profit, rains down profit, and has no employees. None. Me. Like, just rains money on me and makes a ton of money, and there's no people. There's no, It just spits out cash. Now, that sounds lovely, but that's very unrealistic. There are those businesses. They're unicorns. They're magical they are these beautiful little things, but you're probably not going to build a business like that. I'm probably not going to build a business like that. We need people, smart, capable, talented people in our business to help us run that business. Now, we don't need a ton of them. We don't want to overhire, but we definitely need people to build a business that provides enough value to people to make sense. And so that's just, that's the reality of it. Those magical businesses are beautiful and you, you can you stumble across unicorns every now and again. 
But for the rest of us, we need people. We need smart, uh, talented, capable, hungry people to help build a business that provides enough value. You recently told me about uh, a deal that you had to potentially sell part of the company that fell through. Can you share what, what happened there? Yes. So Joe and I, my business partner at Empire Flippers, in 2021, we started looking at, you know, well, we were getting a lot of offers from people to potentially buy Empire Flippers, to invest in Empire Flippers. And we'd always said, no, 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 no. But in 2020 and in early 2021, we started having talks with our management team about them wanting to shoot for the moon, like really make this a moonshot at Empire Flippers. And Joe and I were just, we were nervous about that because we've got everything personal wealth, everything tied up in Empire Flippers. And so taking like a VC approach to Empire Flippers, a real stab at it with a much higher chance of failure wasn't of interest to us. We were taking the more private equity approach. We want it profitable. We want to grow it profitably. We don't want to scale to the moon. And so we told our management team, the only only way Joe and I are willing to do that is if we take some chips off the table. And so we looked at raising a minority investment in 2021. And so we went through the process, we went through our own process, we worked with a broker as well, and got, um, we had multiple meetings, we had a a couple of potential investors that we'd met with multiple times, we brought our entire management team out to the US to meet with them for a week, did multiple days of meetings with them, Joe and I went back a couple of months later to kind of like help finalize the deal. We got into APA negotiations at the very, very end, this is uh, end of 2021, and Leading into January 2022, we were probably two to three weeks from wrapping up the deal and they backed out. And so this was pretty devastating. So we went through an eight, nine month process with them, lots of hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. I mean, it was a significant process and we were very close to doing the deal, which would have provided a materially substantial amount of money to Joe and I. And so that put us into a bit of a funk for another six months or so of trying to like come to grasp in terms with that not going through. Now it was a minority piece, but it was a majority minority. It was a large chunk of the company and uh, it would have been really interesting and good timing too because the market was uh, crazy. Ultimately, they made the right move because we can talk about it, but like as you go through the process, you generally are painting the picture and part of the painting the picture is looking at projections for the next number of years. And we have projections that were rosy, but we started to believe our own bullshit to some degree. Like we started looking at this. We're like, yes, we are going to do this. And so delusions of grandeur maybe. But like we started thinking we're going to really crush it in 2022, 2023 and beyond in terms of growth. And they were right in that our growth, they were right to back out. But our growth in 2022 was not meeting those benchmarks. So we weren't meeting the kind of like projections we'd made for 2022 and 2023. So, but overall, I mean, it's a real, it's a real bummer, Mark, you, really bummer. Your business, Empire Flippers, it's all about getting the deal done. And, and I think you once have described yourself as someone who can take an idea and make that idea happen. When this didn't sort of transpire in the way you wanted it to, how did you sort of overcome that mentally and bounce back from it? It's difficult. You know, we put ourselves in the situation of many of our clients, many of our customers, and and many of our sellers. So when you have an offer that comes in and you get really, really close to getting the deal done, it can be really frustrating. It can be really uh, difficult. So it took us a while. I'd say um, Joe and I, I mentioned we were in a funk for about six months and we had some issues where it was hard to be as engaged in the business as we were previously. And, you know, we, we both kind of 
we struggled personally, but in the business, there was more kind of bickering and less, I think, solid leadership from us and more struggles, internal struggles. We did a really silly thing where part of us having our bicker, bickering is like we kind of went back to our management team and kind of like let them run the business. I mean, they were they were mostly running the business before, but like let them kind of like vie for position in the business. And so we created this kind of like political engine that wasn't helpful to us. And it took us about six months to realize that and kind of like get back with them and say, hey, guys, we don't think we did the best by you. And here's why. And here's what we're doing to kind of like bring this back around. And so it just it took a while to kind of like reset and get the business kind of back on track and, and on the right path. So it was difficult. A few years ago, you launched Empire Flippers Capital, and it's recently been rebranded as as WebStreet. Was this a play to get more capital, more buyers flowing into Empire Flippers, or was it another, like a separate business you were trying to create here? And, and how has that changed? Yeah, so we set it up as a separate entity from the start in terms of like legal entity, uh, but we just shared a lot of resources initially because it just makes sense to have the same designer, marketing crew, and everything and branding EF Capital. It really was built out of, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, we had a lot of people coming to us that just didn't have the skills or they didn't have the time to kind of like buy and run an online business. Like I think of like my aunt, for example, or I think of like someone like you. So someone in your position where, you know, you're like all in on content sites and your own brand and you like the idea of like e-commerce brands and like FBA, but you just you're not going to go out and try, you don't want to try and figure out how to do that. You want exposure to that space because you like FBA, for example. What do you do? Like you could buy a site, but that would take up your personal time. Maybe you put a team on it or something, but like it's not, it's not ideal. You don't have the time to do that. And so we wanted to give people that had money and interest in investing in the space an opportunity to do it passively. And there wasn't any way to do that. We were turning people away for years. Look, I got money. I want exposure to the space. I want to invest and some content sites, a uh, roll-up of FBA businesses. And we're like, hey, sorry, go find yourself an operator. Go find yourself uh, someone you can invest in that'll buy a business and run it for you. And so we realized this is a really high-quality problem to solve, right? Like all these people with all this money want to invest. What do we do for them? And so we created a way for them to do that. So we set up a portfolio, a team of operators that had experience successfully running businesses had experience successfully exiting businesses and said, look, hey, if we can find a bunch of investors for you to buy some businesses and leverage up your skills and time, does that make sense? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. And so we basically pair operators, experienced successful operators with investors. And so we married the two saying, look, we're going to take investors, we're going to match them to operators and help them find and buy businesses. And so that's how EF Capital, now WebStreet, was born. And it was born on like just the idea. We were like, look, we don't know if we can find the right operators. We, we got Empire Flippers. We got this huge network of people that sold their businesses. We know successful entrepreneurs that have built sites. But will they be willing to do it? And what do we have to give them to make that happen? Will we be able to find investors, right? Enough investors, they say, everyone says they want to do something, but are they really interested in investing in these businesses? saying and doing are not necessarily the same. And then third, can we find like the right sites for these operators to buy? And fourth, can we deliver a return to those investors in the end? After it's all said and done, can the investors get a return? And so when we started, we, we told everyone, we don't know any of those. We're literally just trying this out. We told investors this on like uh, webinars. We don't know how this is going to work. Here's our thesis. Here's what we think will happen. 
if you're interested, we're willing, we're going to open up some spots and allow people to, to do this. And it was a real vote of uh, trust like, and a gamble to some degree on their part. And um, we're now years into it and it's it's gone really well. We now have more than five or six rounds. I think we're in our sixth round uh, coming up of funding for different operators. We've bought you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of businesses and and uh, it's been really interesting. What's the bottleneck there? Is it finding capital or finding good operators? In the grand scheme of things, it's operators. We need more qualified, successful operators. And so the good news there is that we found a lot of value in recurring operators. So what we found is like people in your audience, for example, Mark. So there are people that have successfully run businesses, maybe even exited businesses. Maybe they haven't bought that many. That's okay. We can help with that. But they've run and executed on successful businesses. And they're looking for a way to scale up. They want to do larger businesses. They want to do two or three businesses a year. So what if Q1 and Q3 of every year, they're able to outsize their purchasing potential and buy five, six, $700,000 content sites twice or three times a year and really start to scale up their operations, their team, their processes, that's of a lot of interest to operators. They're going to be putting 5% in the deal and getting 20, 25% value in the business. That's of interest to them. So operators, though, is is the long-term bottleneck. The shorter-term bottleneck that I think we struggle with in uh, 2022 is investors. So although we've been doing this a few years, like you need a track record of multiple years to show returns to investors. And so when financing got so much more difficult in 2022, you know, the, uh, there's a financial crush, uh, interest rates have gone up. It was hard to find investors during that period. We've now seen that kind of open up a little bit in 2023. Investors were getting more investment now, so that's coming back. And eventually, but that'll be solved, Mark, because if we can build four, five, six years of track record of like successful returns, ROI on these investments, the big money kicks in, right? The family office money, private equity. There are some investors that we have waiting in the wings. We had some preliminary talks that are interested in getting involved, but they need they need to put a lot more money in than we're taking now. They're looking for like minimum $20 million investments like as a, as a fund. And they also want a longer track record. So we're kind of in this in-between phase. Our thought is always that the big money is going to come once we have the track record, but we're always going to carve out a piece for our kind of initial investors or private investors. So we'll have a carve-out piece for private investors, and then we'll stack the big money on top of, of the, the portfolios, if that do, makes sense. Do you see this as one day potentially being bigger than Empire Flippers? There's a limited number of people that can buy and sell and run online businesses, right? That's a relatively limited space. Now it's been growing and we're, you know, at Empire Flippers, we're riding the wave because as that space becomes larger, there's more people that can capably run businesses. We're riding the wave, so to speak, with Empire Flippers. But if we can consolidate, crystallize the successful operators, the people that are successfully running businesses, there's an unlimited amount of money and funds and people looking for yield, looking for return on their investment. That pool is unlimited. So we're now like it's a blue ocean approach. So our critical piece is the operator piece. The successful operators, the ones that can find the, the right operators for the right businesses, that's the kind of magic for Web Street is like 
pairing that. The money is easier than the skill and the ability to find and run those businesses, if that makes sense. And webstreet.co is the website if people are interested. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's it. And we're always looking for operators. We have a new round going right now every quarter. There's a, a vetting process, an application process. But yeah, you can check out webstreet.co to kind of get the the details. That's my business partner, Joe Magnani from Empire Flippers. And then we have another uh, third partner, Mike Rankovich, who runs that business with us. And it's kind of the, the leading the charge there. Empire Flippers has done, I think, $464 million worth of transactions since since you started. By I my, say $500 million, Mark. We're close. We're just going to get there. It's <laughs> like, so weird to be they're a little short. By my, uh, almost $500 million. By my uh, back of a napkin calculations, that's something in the range of 50 to $70 million in commissions. You travel the world with your wife and your dog. You got a team of people running your business for you. What is it like to have achieved? This must be what you set out to do. Like you're living that life now. How does that feel to to be where you are? It's great, Mark. <laughs> it's great. I, 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 my life is is fun. I feel really blessed. I really love what we do. I love the company we've built. Here's how it's weird. Like, just getting real, Mark. What's weird is like when you have struggles. Like it's really whiny to complain. It feels really whiny, right? Life is really good. I'm, things are so good. If I was looking at myself 10 years ago, I'd be like that guy has nothing to complain about. What's he talking about, right? So that's kind of weird um, is that when you do have struggles or difficulty or stresses, it's like when you put it in perspective, it's like, is it that big of a deal? Well, no. So that's strange. I also say that the grass is greener always. Now, look, I'd say... Having a successful business is fantastic. Having uh, uh, finances to support a lifestyle that you love is obviously amazing. There's also some weirdness, though. There are things where we've built a, a business to the point where you know, sometimes we're told, like, we're not needed. Joe and I aren't needed. We're like, what do you mean we're not needed? I don't know if you guys have, have gotten to this point, Mark, where, like, sometimes your team is like, look, we got this. You know, just, can you just kind of back out a little bit or back off a little bit? And we're like, what are you talking about? This is hard business. But in some situations, they're right. Like maybe we're overstepping our bounds or we're stepping on toes. We're kind of getting involved in things that are already run. And in other areas, we need to provide that guidance because we don't want them fall, our management team falling down paths that we know our failures are going to have problems. And so balancing that is really challenging. That's a real difficulty in terms of like when you step in and when you don't, when you override them and, and when you listen to them and pay attention, that's that's the challenge we're in now, frankly. If you could go back 13 years and give your younger self one piece of advice, what, what would you say? Well, would I listen to it is the other thing. I mean, I think um, I mentioned it earlier, but hiring sooner, hiring faster. We had an, a situation where we brought out an apprentice and we started off with apprentices. I mean, you guys know that obviously the tropical NBA guys, dynamite circle guys. So we met, we met with them in the Philippines and, uh, you know, they said, Oh, we're, we did this apprentice model where we hire people and we bring them halfway around the world, the Philippines. And we pay them, you know, I don't know at the time, 500 bucks a month or something, give them room and board and they're great. And we're like, I don't believe that. Like what kind of donkey is going to come out for 500 bucks a month, 1000 bucks a month with room and board paid for the Philippines. That sounds crazy town. And then we went and met with those guys. And we met one of their first apprentices, one of the early apprentices. We're like, this guy's sharp. Like, he's talented. He's hungry. Like, can you really do this? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. People are interested in, like, living and working abroad and traveling. We're like, we didn't know. We're just living in a bubble. 
So we're like, we'll try this apprentice thing. So we hired our first apprentice and, uh, and he ended up leaving after about a year. We, we didn't set it up for like long-term value. It was just kind of like a temporary thing. And, and we realized, God, you know, a year and he left, like, and it was so like personally draining. We put a lot of time and effort in, into this person. And then like, there's no long-term value. Maybe it's not worth it. So we held off for another year or two. And so looking back, I mean, I think if we'd have continued down that and like made it more systematized, that probably would have been the better move. We'd have grown quicker and faster in the early days. So, you know, putting a process together for hiring and, and continuing to hire rather than doing that one year, taking like a year or two break and then starting it again. That was a delay and a mistake, I think. And is there anything that I haven't asked you today that I should have asked you? I don't think so. I think you did a... You did a good job. How do you like this? Uh, these, these interviews. How do you like interviewing? It's fun, right? It's fun. Just honestly, like learning about other people's businesses and the kind of challenges and decisions that they've made along the way. I feel like that's one of the best way to learn. Like n- not everyone you learn from, you take everything as as kind of gospel. It's more like you know you, sure. you cherry pick a bit of cool advice or something that happened from from everyone, and you kind of build up your own model of how to to, to run things yeah. from that so yeah it's super what do you think you've taken from this for authority hackers what, what can you what piece of advice that you've taken from this where you're like oh maybe that resonates or i think i'm going to take a look at that higher apprentice <laughs> no uh, i think that what you talked about in terms of like hiring faster it's it's, it's been a real problem that we had until very very recently and mm. you know we're just going through that phase now we're bringing on quite a lot of new people this year and it's been quite difficult the first three, six, nine months of, of working with with new people always are, especially when you've, you know, doubled the size of your team in, in the space of nine months or so. So it's it's really, I think, some kind of a validation of of that, that, yeah, there's probably some light at the end of the tunnel here. Yeah, I'd say for you guys, particularly, like, in terms of, like, building out your kind of, like, mid-level management or your senior management team, that's a really crucial aspect because I, I don't know what your guys' long-term goal with Thory Hager, probably not to sell whatever, but if it were having that kind of that middle management and that senior management in place is going to be even, critical or crucial to your business. I mean, it's it's not like, I, I don't think we have a, a sellable business in current form. And we, we, you know, we talked about it before, but it's not a direction where we're kind of focusing on at the moment at least. But I, even if it's not, you know, I think that we're at that stage now where you just can't do everything yourself and you need to delegate accountability, not SOPs and, and tasks. You can do that to, to a point, but you can only manage so many people. You need other people to, to take over. Here's one other bit I'll say that we've been struggling with this recently. We, we don't have a full solution to this, but a lot of times, you know, we have a lot of data coming in from a bunch of different sources, whether it's HubSpot or our platform and all these different things, right? And so sometimes you get like different departments putting together different bits of data and they exclude certain pieces. They're trying to be very specific in what they're looking at. But then you get like disagreement over data. So you have the marketing team pointing at this bit and you have the sales team pointing at this bit. You'll have the marketing team pointing at this and the operations team pointing at this. And and it gets really messy and confusing when you confusing we don't have like a single source of truth. And so when you have different departments pulling and grasping different part pieces of the puzzle and they're discongruent, it's like, oh man, we're not even working on the same data. So uh, putting together like a single source of truth that at least senior management, but everyone in the business kind of agrees that these are the metrics that matter. These are the things that are most important to us. And we agree on what that data says, like what the, maybe not the analysis of it, maybe not the, the prescription, but we at least agree with what well, the problem is because we agree on the data 
is critically important. And we've gotten away from that to the point where it's been problematic in our business. And so we're in the process through the end of the year of really kind of cleaning that up, single source of truth and agreeing on what the most important metrics and data are in the business. So I don't know who needs to hear that, but that's something we've struggled with recently and we're working on now. Scorecards and and kind of having everyone having a number that they're responsible for and, and that, like it's it, it makes a big difference for for sure. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, Justin, thanks so much for your your time today. Empireflippers.com, obviously your, your your site, if people are interested in selling their site or buying their sites, buying any of your sites. Are you active on social media? How how should people follow you or get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, X or whatever, at uh, Empire Flippers. Yeah, you can see me there. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, all the, all the usual spots. Great. Well, Justin, thanks again for your time today. And thanks for watching. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. So we'll see you there. Thanks, everybody. Okay, so let's do a quick breakdown of everything that was covered here. And I want to share some of my own analysis of exactly what's going on. So the first thing that Justin covered was how really the global economy has changed a lot. Interest rates rising means the cost of borrowing is higher. So certain people who were borrowing money for not just to buy websites directly, but also for other things mean that their some of their capital is now going to be apportioned differently. So buying a website, which has always been somewhat of a speculative thing for certain types of buyers, has maybe dried up a little bit. So there's been this kind of hole in the industry. And so there's just not as many people buying websites. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the people who still want to buy websites are really going to be focused on just the best websites. And that means that it's it's gone from really being a seller's market where you could really pick and choose who you wanted to sell to almost to being more of a buyer's market where there aren't enough buyers to buy all of the websites. So it obviously changes the supply and demand and the price of websites has been coming down. Now, not by too much. Justin said that from 2021 to 2022, the multiples only came down from like 36, 37 to 35, 36, which is a quite a small amount. He also said that many people who sell their websites aren't really doing it to time it exactly at the top and maximize gain. There's usually other sometimes personal factors that come into this. That can be as much as, you know, you have a couple of different projects that you maybe want to work on instead. Maybe you're bored with your current project and you want to just start something new, start afresh. Maybe there's financial reasons, tax bills, you know, all these kind of things that come up that lead people to sell. Now, I don't think it's ever possible to time the market exactly and sell at the exact top. That's just not realistic. So whenever you're buying a site, you always have to mentally be okay with the buyer suddenly getting a, a jump in traffic a couple months after you, you sold it. It just happens from time to time. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Certainly, if I had other things going on, I wouldn't be delaying selling my site for a couple years till hopefully, I mean, who knows, but hopefully the economy recovers. I would still be trying to sell it now and move on to the next thing. I think that you can get more value out of your time by focusing in on the things now, today, which are going to generate you future returns. Now, that also means that it's kind of become more of a buyer's market. So if you were potentially thinking of, of buying a site, and a couple of years ago, you're looking and think, ah, these are really expensive for, for what they are. Maybe look again, because you might find that there are suddenly much better opportunities available. I still think that you'll see quite a bit of competition for the best created, best designed, best performing sites. But there's probably some, some hidden nuggets in there if you do your, your research as well. 
one of the things Justin really emphasized was that the highest quality best sites are still selling really well. And of course that makes sense. The money goes where the best sites are. And there's this kind of saying, there's a rising tide floats all boats or rises all boats, something like that. And it's used to signify that when the economy is kind of on the up, as we saw in 2021 and kind of the start of 2022, then any site, good or bad, you know, its valuation and the, its performance raises. It's only when the tide goes out that you see who's still afloat, that you see which businesses actually have substance and merit. So for that reason, it's the sites which have the best fundamentals, the best business, the best chance of long-term success, which are still selling really without too much issue. Now, all along, Gail and I have been big proponents of building high-quality, long-term sites that stand the test of time. And it does seem that these types of sites are being favored more by buyers at the moment. One other big change we saw this year was AI, specifically AI-created content. And Justin was saying that buyers are actually really cautious around sites which have the potential to be overtaken with AI-type sites. So think of your very thin content ad sites or even some affiliate sites where the content is just really low quality and you know, you're know you not adding too much value to the sales process. Now our approach to using AI has always been, let's use it to augment or enhance high quality content creators so they can create better stuff, not spray and pray, spam a bunch of stuff and hope something ranks for a short period of time. And don't get me wrong, there are some people that are doing fantastic with that approach. It is a bit more of a short-term model. That's not the type of stuff from a risk perspective we like to get into. And our training in Authority Hacker Pro and recently in the Authority Site System, we just added some AI content creation uh, tutorials and stuff like that in there. It really focuses on, on this kind of longer-term, higher-quality approach. So don't fire all your writers just yet. Quite the opposite. In fact, you want the good ones um, to stick around with you for the long term. Another thing Justin mentioned was how at the moment buyers are really looking for diversified monetization. So think of businesses which have their own products, either physical or information, electronic products, uh, or it could be if the business provides some kind of like service or tool alongside what they're doing. This seems to add a bit more stability and value perception in the eyes of buyers at the moment. Now we have a ton of content about this stuff in our courses. There's also some really good information in recent podcasts that Gail and I have done on collecting emails, building an email list, and we regularly talk on this podcast about the need to build your own product eventually as your site grows and develops. So this kind of just reinforces the long-term approach we've been taking there as well. So if you are just monetizing with ads or affiliate, then do keep in mind for the long term at least what your next step is going to be after that. Because while I'm a huge advocate of starting out using affiliate marketing and ads, in the long term, and this is something which we saw in our recent affiliate marketing survey, the amount of money people are making per visitor at like 10x's when you start building your own products and developing things that way. So you reach a point where it's just not realistic to start adding 100% growth in traffic every year. That's It's not going to be a linear thing. So at that point, you need to look at monetization. So if you are there, that's something to consider as well. And Justin was really kind of open, I guess, when he shared the, the story about him and Joe almost sold a, a, a sizable chunk of, of Empire Flippers for you know life-changing amount of money. And then it fell through at the last minute. That's a, it's a really good reminder that when you're selling a site or you know doing any kind of big deal, until 
you have the money in your bank, the deal is not complete. So, you know, one thing that I've, I've seen some people do in the past is they get a website ready for sale, they start preparing things, but they take their, their kind of foot off the gas a little bit when it comes to just running the website day to day. So if you are going through a sales process or you plan to in future, make sure you keep pushing things so that if it falls through, you change your mind, something happens, then you still have a, a business that, that's kind of chugging along and everything's fine there too. So what did you think about the interview, guys? Let me know your thoughts. Uh, if you go onto your YouTube channel, if you're listening to this on audio, leave a comment. I'll be in there. Justin will be in there. We'll take a look. We'll try and answer any of your questions that you have about buying, selling websites, or just kind of general SEO stuff as well. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you again in two weeks for another episode of the Authority Hacker Podcast. Mm -hmm.